This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and my guest today is Philip Vahey, who's a senior research scientist at SRI Internationals. Thanks, Phil, for being here. Thanks very much for inviting me. We're going to be speaking about uh, Phil's article in Educational Studies in Mathematics entitled, A Cross-Disciplinary Approach to Teaching Data Literacy and Proportionality. But before we get to that article, I did want to ask Phil to talk about his grad school experience and his dissertation. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Um, So I went to grad school at UC Berkeley in the program then called EMST, Education in Mathematics, Science, and Technology. And my primary advisor was Bernie Gifford there, and I also had Barbara White, Paul Holland, and Alison Gopnik on my committee. And as my um, dissertation work, I built an environment with Noel Entity now at UCLA. It was called the Probability Inquiry Environment. Hmm. And um, we built it to understand how students could use dynamic representations and collaborations around those rep- representations to understand aspects of probability and to some extent data analysis insofar as it would help them understand the probability. So, and we did that through the use of probability games such as coin flippings, where we use probability trees as game boards, etc. And they were able to simulate, you know, hundreds or thousands of coin flips very easily, oh. and help them kind of understand some of the key ideas behind probabilities, such as the event space being an important aspect of expected outcomes. And you mentioned data literacy as kind of, you know, one of the aspects that would fall under the realm of data literacy would be probability. And I was wondering if you could say now how you moved into becoming involved with this Thinking with Data project. Sure, yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. So, you know, right, the probability inquiry environment kind of really led directly to two of the main strands of my research today. Right, And one is the use of dynamic representation technology, and I'm doing a lot of work in the SimCalc and similar environments. And another is this idea about better understanding student data analysis and student data literacy. Really starting from that initial dissertation work that I began to understand how hard it was really for students to understand data analysis and to really make data-based arguments. Hmm. And then um, it also was really became quite evident through that work and others that students had a very difficult time kind of applying the notion of data-based argumentation to aspects of the world and making data-based arguments or even understanding the arguments um, of others that use data either appropriately or inappropriately and to kind of tell the difference between them. And so that sort of led to this work now on the Thinking with Data project. You know, this is an NSF-funded project. It was a large project. It was a collaboration between Kent State and SRI. And I worked with Karen Swan, Mark Van Hooft, um, Ken Raffin, and Charlie Patton, Annette Krakowski and Tina Stanford, as well as a couple others, um, Dan Zalis and Louis Yarnell, who were not part of this article, but were part of the project, especially in its early phases. And, you know, this is um, a large and complicated project, in part because we really wanted to address some key aspects of data literacy, such as what are the kinds of data that people use out in the world in real contexts, what are the kind of mathematical analyses that make sense, and what are kind of the arguments that can or perhaps can't be made using the data. And it really seems to be tackling that issue that you alluded to of 
having this data literacy and knowledge of data and quantities and proportionality, but not just in isolation, not just in a mathematics, you know, purely mathematical environment, but actually taking that knowledge and putting it into dialogue with the world and with other subject areas. And it seems like the Thinking with Data Project is really tackling that issue. Yeah, that's actually a great way of putting it. Um, you know, and we know that data literacy really requires a deep understanding of context, right? Where did the data come from? What is it being used for? What are the relevant arguments? But we also know that math class, it's not really the place to learn deeply about context. The math teacher often isn't that comfortable in delving deeply into context, such as science or social studies context. And also, as you know, all teachers, math teachers and others, are feeling very squeezed for time. Mm -hmm. um, so really, we felt it was incumbent on us in some ways, if we're really looking for deep aspects of data literacy, to find a way that we can build context into the materials, but not expect the mathematics teacher um, to be responsible for all that. Right. And so in the article, it mentions um, some products that are coming out of the Thinking with Data project. It, it mentions these four modules. I was wondering if you could just orient us to that, one of the things that the Thinking with Data project is trying to produce. Right, so we have produced modules there at www.rcet.org slash twd, and they're discussed somewhat in the article. And they show a set of four modules, um, each of which are about two weeks in length. The modules start in social studies, which is where we really dive deeply into the context. Mm -hmm. They then next go into mathematics, where mathematics is used to both go more deeply into the mathematics that was unearthed in social studies, but not really taken up, and also to then prepare students in a way for science, where they'll be using other aspects of data literacy as they start studying things like um, salinity. That is all taken into English language arts, where they are led in the construction of argumentative essays, which is a very standard English language arts activity, but one teachers often have trouble with. And so through that, we bring our students through four different modules, each one attacking a different aspect of data literacy, and each one building on the other. Okay. And, yeah, we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about the, the specific context of water distribution um, in a bit. But before we get there, um, I did want to just ask you to talk a little bit more about thinking with data's sort of theoretical perspectives or the way that they're conceptualizing uh, data literacy and instruction of data literacy. So first of all, in the article, you make some strong connections between the idea of, da of data literacy and the idea of proportionality and proportional reasoning, which, you know, there's a lot of literature in math education about proportionality. So I was wondering if you could talk about that link. Yeah, sure. Um, and that was a really big part of the beginning of this project. You know, this was in many ways a very exploratory project. And at the beginning, our goal was to really understand in what ways can mathematics class be used to support the type of data-based argumentation that should be happening in social studies and other places but might not be. And by linking across the disciplines, really was beholden upon us to better understand that and to provide a context that both is useful in social studies and then can be analyzed in mathematics class. And something we found out that is that in social studies, a really key aspect of data literacy is not only that students investigate authentic problems, that students create arguments, etc., um, around the use of data, but we found that in social studies, a key aspect is the creation of common measures 
and especially compound measures, which are often used for comparison, prediction, and argumentation. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by compound measures that are used for comparison, for instance, people will talk about who's more productive, a worker in the United States or a, or a worker in France. And the only way to do that is to understand these kind of per capita measures mm -hmm. that we have, or what area has more violent crime. Well, most places have different baseline populations. So the only way of understanding that is by understanding a type of per capita measure. What we chose in social studies is a very rich, both a data-rich and contextually rich area, is the quantity and quality of water that's available in the Tigris-Euphrates River Basin, which includes Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Mm -hmm. And understanding the um, distribution of water in that area through the understanding of kind of per capita measures and deep mathematical analyses. Mm -hmm. And so to start getting a little bit into um, the actual context here, what we find is that Turkey is the largest of the three countries, has the greatest population, and has by far the greatest access to water, followed by Iraq and followed after that by Syria. So in a way, if you just take the three countries and put them in population order and water availability order, it's completely, it completely makes sense and it's completely fair. However, if you start looking at populations, right, that doesn't look quite right, right? Um, mm -hmm. So then there's a few ways of looking at it. Some students will say, well, the way it is does seem fair because if you put them in rank order, it's all fine. Some students might say, well, actually, but there's three countries, so each country should have access to one-third of the water. Mm -hmm. And so they should each get one-third. But that's not quite fair because it doesn't take account into populations. And so there's something in the middle, right? Um, but it's very, very difficult for middle school students kind of conceptualize what that is and kind of make this type of proportional comparison themselves. And that's what we think is a weakness often in areas like social studies or science when they start using these complex compound measures but don't really understand what's behind them they're really missing a big part of the point of the analysis. And so we felt that was an area that mathematics could really provide a service and help students understand what's going on in these other contexts while also advancing some of the goals of mathematics education, of really helping students better understand proportional reasoning and proportional measures. Mm -hmm. In addition to those connections to proportional reasoning, um, you also talk about how there's mathematizing going on. Uh, and you know I think we can probably already hear that in the way that you're talking about the situation. You begin with a, a real-world situation, a problem out there, um, but you're already bringing mathematical lenses. You're quantifying things. You're measuring things. And so um, in the article, you talk about this process as a very important process in your uh, thinking with data modules, which is this idea of mathematizing. Yeah, that's right. Um, what we find is that students, and, and I might even say people out in the world in general, will often look at situations that are highly mathematical but not necessarily be able to pull out what's mathematical about them and what's not. And both the what's not was also very important to us. Um, so to go back a little bit on the context, the reason we were able to even use in social studies as a realistic context this notion of water distribution was that the United Nations itself actually states that international water resources should be used in an equitable and reasonable manner. And the Tigris and Euphrates River are clearly international water resources. Mm -hmm. right? However, what does that mean? What does an equitable and reasonable manner mean? And I was saying before that there's a few different versions of it. But to say, well, that could actually be considered a deeply mathematical question. Mm -hmm. 
right? And let's find a mathematical understanding of that. It's not something that comes naturally to students. And in mathematics class, everything has a mathematical answer, even if it's somewhat artificial, right? And so we're also not claiming that the only answer to this idea of what is in equitable and reasonable fashion is that you do the um, calculation of per capita, find out how much water each country should get, and that's it. There are also other very important aspects to this. There's different legal interpretations, there's different uses of water, there's different efficiencies of water use, and so we took this opportunity both to have them deeply understand the mathematics, but also understand that the mathematics was part of a much larger context where that was one piece of what's going on, but there are other things going on as well. Mm -hmm. And once there's been this mathematizing happening and you know an attempt made to use mathematics as a tool to try to answer the questions of reasonableness or equity, then the students are pushed to actually form arguments and you know give justifications and give reasons. Um, and you include that in the article as another important component of how you're thinking about data literacy. Yeah, and that comes from both making arguments and being able to analyze the arguments of others. We see all the time that in um, the news and social situations and social arguments about policy, people will take the exact same data and use it to make actually opposite points. Right. One can be presented with an argument that looks highly mathematical, but is actually a misuse of mathematics, and, and we're all used to that. Mm -hmm. And so that was part of this, as not being able clearly in a few weeks in seventh grade to be able to solve all of that, but to help students at least see that there are times when the absolute numbers make sense, but there are also probably far more times when what you really want is to understand some kind of compound measure, some kind of proportional measure to really make sense of arguments, to make your own arguments, make them valid, and to understand if other people are pre presenting valid arguments or not. I'm speaking with Philip Vahey about his article in Educational Studies in Mathematics from Volume 81. It's entitled, A Cross-Disciplinary Approach to Teaching Data Literacy and Proportionality. Um, Phil, earlier you mentioned the four modules progressing from social studies to mathematics to science then to English language arts, and that that progression wasn't by accident. It seemed to actually be drawn from a theoretical pr perspective. So I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about that perspective, um, which is entitled Preparation for Future Learning, I believe. Um, so I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about how that fits into this work on data literacy. Sure. That was really a major aspect of this study, is to help, is to understand how can we help our students make the link from social studies to mathematics and then beyond that to science and to English language arts? And the current format of school actually pushes against students bringing what they've learned from one discipline into another discipline. They're often told that's not relevant here. We don't mean the same by that vocabulary word here, etc. And so it was really important to us that we help students make this link and have a way that is grounded in some research on how students learn so that way we could really expect that the materials we were building would be effective in some way. And for that, we built a lot on work done by Dan Schwartz and others called Preparation for Future Learning. And the preparation for future learning is built on the notion that you can have students deeply investigate very hard problems, complex and hard problems, but that are bounded in a way. For instance, they get specific contrasting cases where you investigate a problem in one way and you think you're coming to a solution, but then you can get a different data set. Say, oh, my solution doesn't work at all there. I've got to really take into account 
for instance, the number of people in the population, mm -hmm. etc. And through this notion of students deeply engaging with hard problems, but again, in a kind of bounded way where the problems get more complex and deeper, they begin to come close to a solution, but they need not actually develop the solution themselves. That's the preparation part, the preparation for future learning. That what they've really done is not fully developed the canonical mathematical processes, for instance. What they've really done is built a very deep understanding of the problem and what a solution should look mm -hmm. like, even if they can't come up with that solution themselves. And then at that point, they can be introduced to the canonical solution um, in all types of ways. It could be by another investigation. Um, it could be by a lecture. It could be by reading something. But what happens is they sit and say, oh, that is the solution to this problem mm -hmm. that I had. Mm -hmm. Now I understand why my stuff wasn't working, because I wasn't taking this into account. That's a very clever way to solve this part of the problem. Right. It's the idea that and, we were looking for, that we were striving for. It, it yes, seems like it, exactly. it really sets up a motivation for the students, uh, as, opposed exactly, to, exactly. as opposed to you know, starting with the finished final mathematical product. It's kind of like, you you know, typically we might present the finished idea to them and then afterward we try to motivate them into sort of having some interest in it, where this one kind of is taking the reverse approach, which is basically let's, let's motivate the thinking, let's get students started on the thinking to understand um, what's going on and what a solution would look like, and then that way they're, they're excited, hopefully, <laughs> or at least, you know, intellectually motivated to uh, look for and understand that answer. It, it's making me think about, too, the necessity principle um, from Harrell and Tall. Um, which is about, you know, trying to intellectually motivate the students to what they're learning rather than just presenting it to them. Correct. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, and Dan Schwartz and his research group has shown that this is effective in all types of contexts, right? It's not about moving from social studies to mathematics. And so it's really not something specific to our study. We saw it as a general mechanism for exactly as you're saying, a general mechanism for helping students both cognitively and understand what is going on in the problem and also in an effective manner why am I studying this mm -hmm. why do I care about the answer you know well you have an answer you you built a treaty in social studies for instance about water sharing that you knew wasn't quite right you know you left social studies a little bit kind of disappointed and this doesn't seem quite right mm -hmm. like it, it's not really taking everything into account and you can come to math class and say that's what we're missing right. so that's really um, and then from there we feel that we've added a little bit to the PFL, Preparation for Future Learning Approach, because we then um, took from math class and also began to introduce some context from science. And so then in science, they were given more of an opportunity both to kind of engage in the idea again, and one could even say practice it more, have more exposure to it, and then move from there to English language arts, where they can kind of, in, in some ways, really transfer out from a highly mathematical or a scientific perspective to more of the kind of argumentative essay required in English language arts, and again, continue to kind of engage deeply in the context. So um, in the paper refers to that as PFL+. Plus. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel like we've gotten a sense of the thinking with data approach to data literacy and some of the aspects of the modules. Obviously, there's a lot more that people can get from the article or by visiting the website. But I want to give you a chance to talk about, um, too, how the article presented an exploratory evaluation of the effectiveness of these models, be modules because you actually have tried them out in some schools. So I was wondering if you could tell us about how you set up that preliminary evaluation and then what you're starting to find from that. So 
Um, obviously, in some ways, um, our materials couldn't just work and we couldn't just plop them in any place because they do have this um, interdependence between social studies, math, science, and English language arts. And um, the interdependence we created was kind of loosely coupled, right? They have to, the same students should be in social studies, but not even in the same classes, mm -hmm. right? Just students should have taken the social studies unit before they engage in the math and the math before they engage in the science, and the science before they engage in the English language arts. Um, and so because of that, we chose schools for this preliminary work that um, already had team teaching in effect. So if you had this particular English language arts teacher, you would have had a math, the same math teacher, same social studies teacher, the same science teacher. And the reason for that was we, we felt in this exploratory phase, beginning with just one team in a school, right, would be easier than trying to coordinate over a school. Mm -hmm. And so our, um, so our study took place in two school, two middle schools in Ohio. Both of them already had engaged in team teaching. And in both schools, we were able to recruit one of the teams from each school to participate in the Thinking with Data project and let the other teams to be the basis of a um, quasi-experimental comparison. Okay. And uh, what data did you collect from those classes and those schools? So for um, all the classes, we collected a data literacy assessment. Now this is an assessment that our team made in conjunction with others, and the assessment was really designed to measure student interpretation of complex data and synthesize, and synthesize data across different tables, understand arguments that use the data tables, and also let them create their own measurements. Now we didn't want to specifically have the contest the exact same as in our unit because we were asking students who did not take, the, who were not engaged in the thinking with data right. um, modules to, to participate in taking the assessment. And so for that we provided them um, data on changes in aquifer levels over time. And so that was be administered at the beginning and the end of the semester to all students in both schools. Mm -hmm. We also administered a mathematics pre- and post-test that was focused on the use and creation of proportional measures and also had some database argumentation. That was only administered to the Thinking with Data students. Um, in both schools, they use CMP as their primary math curriculum, and we just knew our materials were different enough from the CMP that our real goal was to find out, did the students actually gain in their ability to make and use proportional measures and create arguments about them. So um, we did not compare with the non-thinking with, with to the non-thinking with data students for that assessment. On the math assessment. On the okay. math assessment, yeah. We really intensively observed the thinking with data classrooms. Um, as I said, we had one team in each school fully implement the thinking with data unit. So if you have if you were a math teacher that taught four classes, for instance, four periods of math. Each of those periods is a thing with data materials, right? And so for each of the teachers in each of the schools, in each of the subjects, we had an observer there to see at least one implementation of each lesson. And we also then had an external evaluator who conducted teacher interviews to understand the teacher perspective and what they felt were the benefits and some aspects that could be improved in the project. 
Okay, so that's the setup for this preliminary evaluation of the effectiveness of the Thinking with Data modules. And in the article, listeners can go in and see a lot of the details of the, those preliminary results. Um, but I'm just going to ask you to, to maybe share with us some of the, the high points because there were some positive things that were coming out of that data. Yeah, there really were. I mean, we found that overall for the data literacy assessment, the Thinking with Data students significantly outperformed the non-Thinking with Data students with really a very large effect size of about 1.24. And um, that was very encouraging, of course, because it wasn't clear to us that the students would be able to, one, apply what they learned over these different disciplines and then apply it in a different context. Right? And so the fact that we really saw that the students were able to do that was really very encouraging to us and gives us reason to think that this really is, this approach really does have the possibility for making a difference in students understanding complex cross-disciplinary topics. Mm -hmm. For the math pre and post tests, we found significant gains on that. Um, so that was gains. Again, that wasn't comparisons. That was just absolute right. gains. And interestingly, we found that one of the schools really did not have a gain on the questions about mathematical argumentation, whereas the other did. And when we went back and looked closely at the um, observations, we saw that the class that did not make the gains in mathematical observations really, due to time constraints and timing issues, overly compressed argumentation. So really the students were not given the chance to fully evaluate arguments. They were not given the chance to fully make arguments. The teacher kind of presented arguments and quickly went through them. Why would they be good? Why would they mm. be bad? And that was interesting. In some cases, that's a no-da, right? Well, the students really didn't do much in argumentation, so didn't learn it. But it was really quite... I think it's quite important finding, accidental mm -hmm. finding, of course, but a quite important finding because the arguments were based on things such as what I was talking about before. Here's two cities. This city has more car thefts than the other city, right? Here's two cities, different amount of car thefts. They were not given baseline data, right? Mary says clearly this city has more, is more dangerous or whatever, you know, than the other. Is Mary making a valid argument? Why or why not? And students did just spend a few, a whole bunch of time thinking about proportional mm -hmm. measures, but when presented a mathematical argument that ignored it, they didn't notice it was ignored. Mm -hmm. The students that did engage in the mathematical argumentation and very explicitly had the opportunity to think about that, well, what, what can you say in this situation? What really does make sense? We're able to notice that this is, the, this is a misuse of data. Mm -hmm. Right? This is not a valid argument. We really need to know more information than we have right here. The information could be about number of cars, could be about number of people, could be about miles driven. Whatever it is, we need some kind of baseline in order to make that claim. So again, it really kind of highlighted for us the importance not only of students understanding the mathematical processes, but really having the chance to engage in some of these broader aspects of data literacy, such as understanding and analyzing arguments. Mm -hmm. And also, I'm curious, um, because these modules did span the different disciplines, I'm wondering um, you know, if you want to share anything about the teachers' reactions to you know, being involved in this project, um, from social studies teacher, math, science, and English language arts teachers. Yeah, that was um, really one of the most interesting things that we found is that one thing we found is that the social studies teachers were the least satisfied. And in retrospect, that makes complete sense, and it was something that we um, really didn't account for because the students left social studies knowing they did not make great treaties, and we never, but they had um, treaties about water mm -hmm. distribution and water sharing, and we never did circle back into social studies and say, well, in a few weeks, come back and have them bring their work for math and rediscuss them. 
So the social studies teacher themselves never got closure on that. Now the students did. Right. The students were fine with it, but the social studies teacher kind of never knew what came oh, of it, yeah, yeah. right? And in the interview process, the evaluator told them what the results were, and they were much, much right. happier with it. Just the loop was closed <laughs> for them, right? So that's something we learned that we really do have to keep our teachers involved throughout. Um, the mathematics teachers really thought that coming in with some context for the data was useful um, in doing that. And we also found in the observations one teacher who said it was more useful than the other really took to that. And for instance, read the United Nations wording on sharing international um, water courses before, before doing that activity, and would constantly refer back to, remember in social studies you did this, remember in social studies you did this. And that was really, um, we can't say anything about correlating that with student learning, but we found those classes to seem to have richer discussions, kind of richer exchanges by students about that aspect. Mm -hmm. Right, and so there was really something there. The math teachers really did begin to understand that having this context was helpful. The science teachers also felt that it was very helpful to have a, have a context for why do we care about how different irrigation processes result in soil salinity, different types of soil salinity, and why do we care about soil salinity? And being able to have this background in social studies and then in math, or where they really deeply understood the context of these countries and the issues they were struggling with water really kind of gave them something to hang on to with that. But the most surprising thing to me really was that the English language arts teachers really were the ones that took to this the most. And that surprised me. I kind of had this perspective of, you know, well, we'll try to get this by the English language arts teachers and hopefully they won't be too mad at us by the end for, you know, like mathematical imperialism or something, right? Trying to take over their mm -hmm. classrooms with, the, with yet more mathematics when they have their own things to teach. And what we found was that by situating this study from the English language arts perspective in argumentative essays, it really made argumentative essays much richer than the teachers were used to. And, and from what I understand, English language arts teachers often find themselves in a bit of a bind. If they, choose, if they ask students to make an argumentative essay about something that students are already familiar with, well, different students have different levels of familiarity with it. So it might not be fair to some students. Some students might really be immersed in this idea. Others might really not know it at all. And so it's really just not fair. You can't necessarily judge if someone's better at making an argumentative essay. You're kind of judging if they have more exposure to this context. When you choose something that nobody knows anything about, and then you tell the students to write this five-paragraph essay, like, I don't even know five paragraphs about the topic. I can't possibly write five paragraphs mm -hmm. about or this. Or make a coherent argument right. because they, yeah. Right. Or right. make a coherent, yeah. I don't understand right. it, right? However, in this context, the, social, the English language arts teachers knew that the students had all been studying this topic for a while. They understood deeply issues around water availability, water quality, what are different possible scientific and social solutions to inequitable situations in water availability and sharing and quality. And so at that point, the students knew too much to just write down everything they knew. They had to actually do things like pare back their arguments to the most relevant parts of the argument they were making. They had to do things like have an introductory paragraph that really did set up why you were making this argument and what data you were going to be using. And that's something that, while it is what you should do in the authentic practice of making an, argu of making an argument to someone or an argumentative essay, it's something they have really struggled with. So they found this actually perhaps 
to be more fruitful than the other teachers mm -hmm. did. And so again, that was a really big surprise to me, and it was it was interesting mm -hmm. to see. And they got to be at the end of the line where they got to reap all the benefits of the previous work too. So. Well, that's, exact, that's exactly right. The social studies teacher at the beginning right. of the line found the least yeah. use, right? And the mathematics teacher was like, yeah, that was pretty good. One was like, yeah, that was great. One was pretty good, right? But, uh, but once you got to English language arts, exactly, they were able to really have all these perspectives right. and tie them up really And nicely. then hopefully, yeah, with the students, since the students got to go through all of it, I mean, hopefully the, the students are more in line with the English teacher's reactions to how it went because uh, the students got to go through all four as well. Yeah, and we really found that for um, a lot of the students that that was the case. Not not for all, mm -hmm. obviously, but we all, there were also some interviews with students where they really were very um, eloquent in describing how well the, the materials worked and how they could really understand this big issue. And um, one thing I didn't get a real chance to mention before, but in our observations and work with the teachers, we also saw that um, the one teacher that made more links back to social studies in that class they actually had these binders that were their thinking with data project binders that they kept with them the whole time. And for, they brought it from social studies to math, from math to science, from science to English language arts. And for those students, it really was an explicit tie-in and a very deep tie-in. And for the students in the other classes, it's not quite clear how explicit that was for mm -hmm. all of them, right? And, and some students are always, of course, are able to um, make that leap. But for others, it was a little bit diff more difficult mm -hmm. to, to go from course right. to course. I'm speaking with Phil Vahey about his article in Educational Studies in Mathematics, and I was wondering if you had um, a single takeaway point that you wanted to kind of leave as a final thought with the listeners. Yeah, I'd say the takeaway right now is that, you know, there is really something that we can all gain by thinking about how we can approach some of these deep problems in education from a cross-disciplinary manner, but it also is going to take a lot of work. I mean, we actually found that the social studies standards in Ohio had changed a little bit between the beginning of our design and the time we're actually implementing in the classroom, making it a bit more of a tenuous fit with, the, with social studies, for instance. We found that um, there, there is still a bit of issue in the way schools, even with our design, the way that schools are formatted into these 45-minute chunks really can still make it difficult for teachers to talk, for the social studies teacher to actually talk to the math teacher. Right? They're in their own disciplinary departments often. Right, and so um, while there really is much to be gained, it's really a problem that's going to take a lot of thinking about how can we both respect the disciplines, because they're not going away, right? The, the common core did not help to break down disciplinary boundaries mm -hmm. necessarily, mm -hmm. right? And so we can expect that the disciplinary boundary is going to stay in some format, but how can we work so that way in those areas where it's very appropriate for us to try to make the connections across the disciplines, we can support teachers and students in doing that. Mm -hmm. I've been speaking with Phil Vahey, and you can find his article in Volume 81 of Educational Studies in Mathematics. Um, but before I let you go, Phil, I want to just ask you one more question. I ask this of all my guests. If you weren't in the field of math education, what, what would you see yourself doing? What would I see myself doing? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I was just talking about middle school students, and when I was middle school, um, if I didn't have a tin ear and the worst voice in the world, I would have seen myself, of course, mm -hmm. in a rock band, but that, that wasn't going to happen. Um, and before I got into education, I was actually um, in software development. So I worked at um, well, a company called Claris that was a subsidiary of Apple on a product called FileMaker Pro. So I had another career before, but then I left that career, so I guess I can't say I'd be <laughs> doing that. Uh, so now I'm here. Perhaps my... Um, 
my other career or next career would either be a kind of um, user experience, not even designer, right? User experience curmudgeon. <laughs> I don't know if that would be a career. You could try to make but, one out of them. Um, or just, yeah, I can maybe make up my retirement career will be, will be a curmudgeon. Um, that seems to be reasonable. Um, specifically about user experiences, you know, like signs being faced the wrong way when you need them, or just like lines not actually being aligned with the place you have to get to, or, you know, the general world of of the designed, the issues around the fact that we live in a designed world, but people don't seem to take much time in designing uh, it well. Just the things that you see, we're like, that could be better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, Phil, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about your work. Thanks, Sam. It was great.